Well, let me wish you a, a happy Easter. Good to, be, uh, good to be together and good to have the sun shining and to have a baptism just as a bonus. Uh, what, a, what a great way to celebrate. I want to tell you about three uh, Sundays. Three Sundays uh, that hopefully will make a difference to us today. The first one is kind of obvious, and that's Easter Sunday, right? Easter Sunday happened, uh, the original one, almost 2,000 years ago. What an incredibly significant day, whether we realize it or not. It was the day that changed all of human history. God sent his son into the world. Jesus came into the world. He came with a purpose. His purpose, his mission was to go to the cross. And so he did everything that he did, his teaching, his miracles, all the different things that we're familiar with, the stories about him. But his real intent, his real goal was to go to the cross. He went to the cross and he died there to die in our place. He died there to pay the penalty for our sin, to show us God's love for us and to make a way for us to come into God's family. When Jesus died on the cross that first Good Friday, his body hung there until they got permission to come and take it down. They took his body to the tomb, uh, put him in the tomb, sealed the tomb, put the stone in front of it, sealed it, put soldiers around. It was guarded. It was finished. The story was over. The disciples kind of went back to their place where they were hiding. uh, And that was it. That was the weekend until Sunday. Because on Sunday morning, The same Jesus that was buried dead in the tomb stood up and walked out of the tomb. And that changed everything. No one really was kind of watching. Uh, There was was some stuff happening, obviously, angels and soldiers and stuff. But essentially, the world thought everything was normal. But when Jesus walked out of that tomb, Jesus uh, changed all of human history. And so then over the course of the next few weeks, about six weeks, Jesus appeared to his disciples and to others. He appeared to a group of uh, 10, a group of 11. He appeared to pairs. He appeared to individuals. At one time, he appeared to a crowd of 500 people inside, outside, on the road, going somewhere uh, where they were, eating food, inviting them to touch him. A whole load of different uh, appearances or, or encounters in order to prove to the people that saw him, that he was actually raised from the dead. Uh, It took about six weeks. Once the six weeks were done, those followers of Jesus were convinced. They knew. It wasn't a, a question of building belief in something. They'd seen it with their own eyes. They touched him with their own hands. They knew that Jesus was alive again. And because Jesus was alive again, that certainty changed everything for them. With that reality, with that fact, they were able to go out across the uh, ancient Roman Empire and to spread the message that death has been conquered, that God has sent his son, he's died in our place, and now he's alive, and everything is different. With that certainty, they were able to spread a message of hope in a world that was desperately, desperately needing it. And with that certainty, they were able to give their lives to tell the world about Jesus who gave his life and then came back to life so that we could have life. And that message, that certainty that they had, led them each one to the point where in separate places at different times, it cost them their life. This wasn't just a kind of a group thing where they were excited for a season. This was individuals years and years later in different parts of the world getting to a point where the authorities and those uh, with any other influence wanted them stopped. 
Peter, for example. Peter, uh, tradition of the church tells us, history tells us, he was crucified upside down in Rome under the persecution of Nero. The apostle Paul was also killed in Rome. Different method, not going to get into details, but he was killed in Rome. James, the brother of John, he had been killed. All of them, with one exception, were killed. Just think about that. They, they'd gone out with this message. They were so gripped by the fact that Jesus was alive that years later, at pain of death, they didn't budge. They never said, oh, well, you know, we, it was kind of a thing, and we kind of did this thing, and this thing sort of got, you know, got carried away and you know, actually didn't really happen. No, they never flinched. They never budged. They never kind of backtracked and said, well, you know, he sort of rose or he spiritually rose. No, they were certain. They'd seen him. They'd touched him. They knew that Jesus was alive after they knew that Jesus was definitely dead. And one by one, they were killed for that. And then the years kept passing. AD 70 was the year that Jerusalem fell to the the Romans. Uh, The years kept passing. And you get into the 90s. Remember, Jesus was crucified and raised again in the early 30s. So 60 plus years later, there was one disciple left. It was the beloved disciple, John, the one who had been really close to Jesus. He'd been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd been there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd been there at the Last Supper, the one leaning against Jesus to ask him who it was that would betray him. John was super close to Jesus. And the years had passed and all of his peers, all of his colleagues, all of the other witnesses to the risen Christ were dead. And the years kept passing. And when you get into the 90s, at the time when the book we're going to look at was written, John was was an old man. And for 60 years, he had kept on preaching. He'd kept on praying. He'd kept on pressing on for Jesus. But the 90s were a tough time. The Caesar, the new Caesar was Domitian. Domitian kind of made it his mission to make uh, persecuting Christians a greater sport than it had ever been before. Nero was nothing compared to Domitian. I'm not going to get into the details because I don't want you going away imagining what they went through. But let me just put it this way. Being fed to the lions in the Colosseum would have been the nicest of options under Domitian. It was incredible the things he was doing or about to do to Christians. And I wonder for those Christians in the 90s, I wonder if maybe the resurrection of Jesus was starting to feel a little bit different. You see, for John, he, he could remember where he was when he heard and where he was when he saw and what Jesus said. And he, he could remember those kind of details. But for the others, for the younger people, they were taking his word for it. They were taking the word of other eyewitnesses. And for years, there had been eyewitnesses all over the place. If you had a question, you could easily go and find one who could say, yeah, I was in the 500. I saw him. It definitely, he was definitely alive. I, it was definitely him. For years, eyewitnesses were all over the place. But by the time you get to the 90s, the eyewitnesses will have largely died out and then there's John and I wonder if maybe even for John even though he kept preaching and praying and pressing on I wonder if for him maybe there were moments where the resurrection of Christ kind of became just a historical fact now, I want to be careful what I mean by that. I, I don't mean that the fact developed like some sort of myth or legend that eventually you know, was accepted. No, 
That's not the way life works, is it? Facts are facts. When something happens, it happens. All right? You can't kind of you can rewrite history and change it to suit your own ends, but that doesn't change what actually happened, does it? I was born in April of 76. Now, no matter how much I try to claim I was born in, you know, February of 1980, it doesn't change the fact that I was born in April 76. That's a fact. Jesus rose from the dead. That is a historically provable fact. Far more provable than almost everything that we believe in history, everything we know about. The evidence is massively overwhelming. So I'm not saying that the resurrection of Jesus became a fact. What I am saying is it had been a fact since the moment it happened. And for the years that followed, it drove them. It was a reality that gripped them. But I wonder... If by the 90s, there might have been a sense in which it started to become just a fact. Maybe the way it feels for us. In the sense that Jesus died and then Jesus rose and all that happened 2,000 years ago. I wonder if John maybe started to feel a little bit that way. And even if he didn't, I'm sure the Christians maybe were starting to feel that way. And then... Then there was a Sunday, sometime in the 90s. I don't know what time of year, I can't tell you what time of day, but I can tell you it was a Sunday. And on this particular Sunday, John got to see Jesus again. Can you imagine what that was like? Have you ever seen one of those TV shows or YouTube's full of this kind of stuff where, where maybe, you know, twins separated at birth or whatever, or some, you know, some life circumstance means that somebody ended up living in Australia in the 1950s and they'd lost contact and, you know, you kind of watch it and you know what's coming and then there's kind of this moment where, you know, the story's being told and then they say, would you like to, would you like to turn around? And they turn around and there's the brother, the uncle, the whatever, the pet chimpanzee, who knows? There's someone there that's precious, right? Have you ever seen one of those things? I try to avoid them because I end up weeping and that's embarrassing. It's just, you know, what's the point? But, you know, one of those powerful, poignant moments. Imagine what it was like for John. After all those years, after everything that he'd been through, here he was now on an island, effectively imprisoned to try to contain this message because this old man would not stop preaching. And there he was on the island of Patmos when one Sunday... He saw Jesus again. Let's look at the passage that describes it. It's in Revelation. I think in your Bibles, it's page 1028. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Revelation chapter one. Affirmation page number 1028. Yeah. Revelation chapter one. We're going to jump in at verse nine. This is what he writes. He says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. You know when a, a trumpet blasts, you're, it, it's got a sound that just penetrates, doesn't it? it? It sets your adrenaline going. And here's a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches that were on the mainland, not too far from where he was imprisoned. And so here's John 
just praying, just on the Lord's day, doing what he did. And suddenly he hears the voice. I love the fact that he's told to write it down. What that means is that this wasn't just a kind of special um, get back together reunion for Jesus with the disciples. This wasn't just like a, you know, a decades later social where the disciples got together. Most were dead, so it was just Jesus and John, but it was a kind of a private affair. No, this was something that Jesus wanted everybody to know about. And so in the first thing he says to John is, write this down. Other people need to see this. Other people need to be able to uh, access what you're about to experience. And so then, verse 12, he turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. Drop down to verse 17. John writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. First thing I want us to see, the reason we've jumped down the verses is because we want to put this up front. It's Easter Sunday. We just want to make it really kind of a big statement. Jesus is alive. Right? Jesus is alive. Not just Jesus was alive, but Jesus is alive. Now, John's reaction is completely understandable. If, if we could manage it, I, I promise you, as elders, we would pray for this. And if there was some way that we could you know, kind of uh, make it happen, we would give you a glimpse of Jesus because we'd love to see it too. If we got a glimpse of Jesus, if the, if the skies were kind of pulled back and we got even a split second our reaction would be the same as John's. We would be flat on our faces. We wouldn't have to kind of think about it and say, now what does the Bible say to do when you see Jesus? We wouldn't need to sort of think application. Bam, we'd be down on our faces. But I love how Jesus comes and lifts him up. I love how Jesus in in the glory and the splendor and the the majesty that, that is displayed in this moment reaches down to John and says, don't be afraid. You don't need to fear. Why? Because he's alive. He, he reiterates it. He says, I, I died. That happened, past tense. But I am alive, present tense, forevermore. Not I died and I was alive for six weeks more. It's I died and I am alive forevermore. And here we are 60 plus years later. And John is being told by Jesus, hey, John, I'm alive. What you saw was not just true then, it's true now. I'm alive. And that means you don't need to be afraid. He says to him, hey, I've got the keys of death and Hades. Keys are useful things, aren't they? I've got a key ring always in my right pocket. This has actually two keys, not to death and Hades uh, at all. Uh, This is to Mike's house. Okay, ignore any connection between those two. But, but having the keys is a great thing, right? If Joel says to me, hey, hey, Dad, can we go and watch the football? Which we don't want to do at the moment. But if he says, Dad, can we go watch the football? And I go, probably, oh, Mike's not here. Oh, where is he? Well, Spain, obviously. Um, oh, hang on, I've got the keys. It's okay. We can go watch it. Now, let's say we go watch the football. 
uh, which we don't want to do. And we're watching the football, and, and Mike gets distracted, you know, like a phone call from Spain or something. And Mike leaves and locks the door. Well, then we're locked in. It's okay, I've got the keys. Right? When, when, when you're kidnapped or when you're in prison, the words you want to hear from the best friend that you have is, it's okay, I've got the keys, right? That changes everything. If you're kidnapped, if you're in prison, but your best friend is there and they say, it's okay, I've got the keys, then there's nothing to worry about. And Jesus is saying to John, his best friend, he's saying, hey, it's okay. I've got the keys. Death? Don't worry about it. Hell? Not a problem. There's there's no way that the ultimate enemy of the human soul can hold you anymore because I've got the keys. I've been there, I've taken care of it, and now I'm in charge of that and not a problem. Now, if Jesus is alive, and if Jesus holds the keys to death and hell, then actually there's nothing to worry about. It's that reality that meant those disciples could stand before their accusers and refuse to back down. The Roman Empire hated them because they, they just kept proclaiming, well, we, we, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, stop saying that or we'll kill you. Jesus rose from the dead. We're serious. We're going to kill you. Go on then. It's fine because Jesus is alive and Jesus has got the keys of death and hell. So what, what harm are you going to do? You, you kill me and I go to be with him. Death cannot hold me. Death is dead. Hell is defeated. You've got nothing over me. That's why in the early years of the church, they said it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. Because they watched these people dying with joy. Dying with joy. Dying with confidence. Dying as if there was nothing that could be done to them. And if there's nothing that can be done to them, they're frightening. And they were the message kept on spreading. And so here's Jesus reinforcing for John decades later. It's still true, John. I'm still alive. I still got the keys. Everything is still as it was. No need to be afraid. Now, if we go back up, the paragraph that we skipped tells us something else just to reinforce that. Jesus is alive, right? His heart is beating. Today, that's true, praise God. But verses 12 to 16 give us the description of Jesus, which is going to kind of reinforce that, but add something even more amazing. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Let's just pause there because this is kind of imagery we're not used to. John's describing what he sees and he's describing it using the best words he can. In fact, in these verses, he's going to kind of be referencing and alluding to the Old Testament like crazy. We won't go into that because of time, maybe one exception. But you've got these seven golden lampstands. Imagine seven big candelabras with the kind of the flame burning, right? Each one of them represents one of the churches, one of the, the little local gatherings of believers in Ephesus or Smyrna or wherever. Notice the first thing that, he's, that he sees. He sees Jesus in the midst of them. He doesn't see Jesus standing off at a distance or Jesus way, you know, way off kind of thinking about other stuff. He sees Jesus right in the midst of his churches. 
What that means for us, the same as it meant for them, is that today, Jesus is alive, his heart is beating, right? And Jesus is involved, his heart is for us. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That here we are 2,000 years later and Jesus is still in the midst of the golden lampstands. He's still in the midst of his church caring about what happens. There's presumably a Trinity Chippenham lampstand. And he knows and he cares. In fact, we're told that as one like a son of man, that's the Old Testament reference I've got to mention, in Daniel chapter 7. This is a a reference that comes up multiple times in the Gospels. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel got this vision of the throne, the cosmic throne of, of, of everything, right? And on the throne, he sees the Ancient of Days, the God who created everything. We would think of him as God the Father. And then he sees one like a son of man coming to the throne and being given authority to reign over all the nations, over the kingdom of God. Here's the son of man. Here's that language. It's saying that Jesus is in charge. Later on in Revelation, we're told that he is the king of kings. Like you can have your kings, your little kings and your big kings, but put all your kings together, right? The kings of all the nations, the black king, the white king, you know, the whole chessboard, put all the kings together. Jesus is the capital K king of all the little kings. He is so king king. He is well above the kings, right? Jesus is the king of all kings. He's the son of man and he's there in the midst of the lampstands in charge. That's the Jesus that we pray to. That's the Jesus that we worship, that we sing about, the Jesus that hopefully we remember during the week because he's the Jesus who is not just alive today, he's also involved today, involved in our lives. More than that, we also get this description of the clothing, this uh, robe that goes down to his feet and a golden sash, not around the middle like a warrior, but around the chest, kind of higher up, this golden breastplate, if you like. It's kind of, at very least, it's talking of dignity and power and authority, but it seems to be kind of an image from the Old Testament of the great high priest, or the high priest, this is the great high priest. It's kind of like a priestly robe with the priestly breastplate. And what does a priest do? A priest represents God to people and people to God. In the Old Testament, a priest would take, the high priest would take the the blood of the animals and bring the blood into the Holy of Holies and, and kind of sprinkle the blood and make a cover for the sins of the people. This is Jesus, the great high priest who has taken blood not from animals but his own blood and he's taken it not into the temple but into the heavenly temple and he's brought that perfect blood before the Father and he's said, look, this is for the sins of my people. It's dealt with. He's done it once for all. It never needs to be done again. And John turns and he sees Jesus involved in the midst of the lampstands as the great high priest who has dealt with sin. Sin is finished. It's gone. It's taken care of. We're forgiven fully, finally, freely, forever. But the whole deal, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's our great high priest. Book of Hebrews tells us a lot about that. And he's the king of kings. He's the son of man. He is the one who is in charge. He's taken care of sin. And now he rules and he reigns in our midst. And John is getting this vision 
to make sure that he knows, and I'm sure he did, but to make sure that they knew and to make sure that we know because it's written for us to see that Jesus is still alive. All the, the, the glorious realities of Easter Sunday are true this Sunday. Let's keep going uh, just for a couple of minutes. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, different possibilities of what this means. You, you could say, well, it looks like a sort of image of purity and purifying. Right? That, that there's a purity about him and his eyes are like a flaming fire. He's able to judge and deal with sin and purify. And that's certainly true. There's a sense in which it looks like the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel. And this isn't the only place. All the way through Revelation, we find descriptions of God the Father in the Old Testament being given to God the Son in the New. He is fully God. The Bible is really, really clear about that. But I wonder if maybe there's another thing that we could mention as well, as well as his godness and his purity. I wonder if there's just a maybe a little hint of age connected. When we see white hair, we tend to think age, right? Starting to see it here. Uh, some people are growing a beard and starting to show here, right? And, and it's, it's age. And in, in this world, in our culture, we tend to go, oh, you know, fading, getting old. You know, it's, you lose your faculties, your eyes dim, your muscles fade. You know, it's kind of a negative the way we perceive it, Right? But what if, what if there was no sin? What if death was not in the equation any longer? White hair would be absolutely glorious, wouldn't it? Age, wisdom, perspective, insight, all of the positives with none of the negatives. That's what we're seeing with Jesus. He has got the ultimate perspective, the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate insight. Got all the benefits of eternity, age. And at the same time, eyes like flaming fire, eyes that are alive. I wonder if that maybe is kind of side by side with the, the wisdom. And it's speaking of the, the energy and the motivation and the liveliness. Maybe we would think of it of youth. His eyes undimmed. All the motivation, all the energy. Jesus isn't old like, you know, slippers on, feet up, napping all the time. Jesus is as alive today as he was on the day he walked out of the tomb. Which means that he has full perspective since he's God. He knows what he's doing and he has all the motivation he needs to do what he's doing. He is absolutely energized. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He is full of purity. He is full of divinity. He is full of energy. He is full of wisdom. He is exactly the person that we want to be not just alive, but involved. And that's exactly what John is seeing. That he's in the midst of his churches. He's alive. His heart is beating. And he's involved. His heart is beating for us. Well, he goes on. He keeps adding more and more description. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. That's explained later as the messengers, angels, or leaders of the churches. Don't worry about that, but praise God for it. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So, so Jesus is, is, is like he's ready to judge all those people persecuting. He's ready to act and deal with it. 
He's able to speak with power. He's able to speak with precision. All of these things are are coming through this. And at the end of it, I wonder if John maybe stopped quoting the Old Testament type of language and just went back into his own memories. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Just like the Mount of Transfiguration. Ah, this reminds me of that. And so John gives us that at the climax of that paragraph. What John saw that Sunday was needed not just for him, but for all the Christians who would receive these documents. I think there's still, this vision is still needed for us today. Because how easily we can start to feel like Jesus is disconnected. Jesus is a historic figure who died and rose and was alive for six weeks more. And then he's maybe coming back. But, but now, well, now we just got to kind of get on with it. And I'd love if we could have the same vision that John had. Wouldn't it be amazing just to be absolutely gripped afresh by the fact that Jesus is alive. His heart is beating and Jesus is involved. His heart is beating for us. He's involved. He's dealt with our sin completely once and for all. He's ruling in our midst and he is able to rule perfectly because of that combination of purity and divinity and wisdom and energy. He's motivated. He hasn't given up. He hasn't gone, well, you know, 21st century, I'm getting bored of this. Oh my goodness, the people at Trinity Chippenham, they've got issues. Jesus isn't frustrated. He isn't quitting. He isn't retiring. He isn't fading. He is as alive today to rule in our midst as he has ever been. And I'd love us to catch a glimpse of that. But if we don't, we've got it here. And it was written down so that we could see it. And you know what? One day, maybe a Sunday, who knows? But one day, we are going to see him. One day, we're no longer going to be anticipating and remembering, no longer praying by faith. Instead, we're going to be seeing by sight. One day, we're going to look on the one who bled for us. And we're going to say, yeah, you're the one that died. And you are alive. I knew it. I knew it. Your your word said it. And I believed it. I kind of wavered at times. But I knew it. You are alive forevermore. Son of man reigning and able to rule in our midst. To rule and deal with the issues that we face. The great high priest who's taken care of all of our sin. And is able to continually purify us and work in us with incredible, perfect, divine wisdom and undimmed energy and motivation. Jesus is alive. His heart is beating today. Jesus is involved. His heart is beating for us. Let's worship him together.